Good morning again. If you want to open up your Bibles to Ephesians, we're now in chapter 2, so I want to uh, thank Laura Shepherd, one of our uh, elder board members, spoke to us last week from uh, the end of Ephesians 1, and so just thankful for him, doing a great job, got to hear the digits on that, and um, I know it was good, good for me to get away and good for y'all to get away from me for a week, but I'm glad to be back, so, oh thanks, that's all right. Uh, but I am glad to be back with you, and uh, glad to be back in Ephesians. We're, we're calling this series in Ephesians a new identity. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 2, which if you want to grab one of the black Bibles under the chairs, it's going to be page 976. You can follow along there if, you, if you'd like. Um, we're calling it a new identity, and the concept is that uh, we are tempted to identify ourselves uh, to feel marked by our immediate circumstance, right? By... Uh, being sick, by running out of money, by being depressed, uh, by falling into habitual sin, whatever it might, might be that's bombarding you in your present situation, we're, we're tempted to say, that's who I am. And, and God says, I've, I've come to you and I've made you my child. Through, through Christ, I've adopted you and I've made you mine. And so again and again in Ephesians, it challenges us to find our identity in God, find our identity in what God has done instead of what we have done, whether good or bad. Uh, we, we shouldn't find our identity in our good things any more than our bad things, but we should find our identity in Christ and His work on our behalf. And so that's what we're challenged to again and again here. To, today, specifically, what we're going to zero in on is the concept that, that we were dead and God made us alive. Um, that our spiritual situation was very much like Lazarus's situation, where Jesus came and Lazarus was dead and he had to call him out of the tomb. That, that Lazarus didn't say, hey Jesus, I'm a little sick, will you help me? But, but Lazarus was dead. And Jesus revived him, miraculously, supernaturally. And so we're going to see that kind of picture today as Paul unfolds it spiritually. We're, we're dead. Uh, we're not just sick, but we're dead. Uh, so chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Next week we'll look at 8, 9, and 10, which is, is kind of a capstone and summary for, for a lot of the stuff we'll see today. Um, so they, they go together, but they can kind of be broken into two pieces, so we'll look at the rest of it next week. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the big idea, his kindness that he's shown to us in making us alive in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us to rest in the work that you've done. We pray that you would help us to have um, the courage to face uh, just how dead we are in our own sin and even in our own righteousness that we've, that we've accomplished by our own strength. God, help us to see that in those things still, we were all dead and we needed you to make us alive. And so I pray this morning for all of us that you would help us to, to celebrate your kindness to us as we recognize uh, the terrible state we were in 
and the great grace and life that you've given us by making us alive in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's another picture that we get of this idea of being dead and made alive in the Old Testament. And so I want to read this to you, and I want to do something a little different. I don't normally do this kind of thing, but uh, what I'd like to suggest, you don't have to do this, is just that you would close your eyes and kind of let your imagination uh, follow the, the picture that I'm going to read to you. It's from Ezekiel. Um, it's a picture in Ezekiel where, where the prophet Ezekiel is, is prophesying about the restoration of God's Old Testament people, uh, the return from exile, but it's also... Uh, multiple layers of fulfillments because the, the theme of return from exile in the scriptures, we see Jesus saying he's fulfilled in our return from being exiled from paradise, right? The exile theme is not just something that talks about the Israelites being kicked out of the land of Israel, but the exile theme also talks about Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden and, and the situation that we're all in of we don't live in paradise anymore. And we look forward to this future promised land that, that Hebrews talks about us being restored to in Christ. And so all of these things all, all go together in the, the riches that we have in Christ, the restoration that we have in Christ. So if you'll, if you'll close your eyes for just a minute, I'm going to read from Ezekiel 37. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones." He led me around among the bones, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This, you can open your eyes now. This is the picture of Ezekiel being brought through this valley of bones, really a horrible uh, picture I preached from Ezekiel 37 one year on uh, Halloween, you know, just because of the, the time of year. It's this creepy story, you know, this vision of just, of just death, but God coming into this hopeless situation, and uh, not just a body that had just passed that needs to be defibrillated, right? I mean, we, we've got some technology now, right? Uh, uh, someone that passes away, sometimes we can revive that body. These were dry bones, and that's the kind of situation that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2. He's saying it's, it's much worse than you thought. It is, it is much worse than you thought. Jack Miller is a, a pastor that passed away years ago, and he used to say, cheer up, you're, you're worse off than you think. Cheer up, you are worse off than you think, but you're more loved than you could ever imagine. And we have to, we have, to have both of those pieces to really get how good God is. If we just talk about his grace, apart from recognizing the situation of hopelessness that he found us in, it's kind of meaningless. But when we really recognize that we're dead, that there was nothing we could do, that no matter how good you are or bad you are, you can't save yourself. 
but God can save you. And that's what God does. He's a saving God. He's a kind God. And that's the picture that we get in these passages today. And so the first thing I want us to really uh, get is, is the kind of uh, the, the deadness that we find ourselves in. He makes us alive in Christ while dead. That's the circumstance. And so we really need to make sure that we understand that. Whether you're a, a rebellious sinner that thinks your sins are so great that God could never forgive you, or you're a, a religious zealot that thinks God is pretty happy to have you in his corner, right? Either one, we have to recognize that we're dead. There's nothing we could do, but we needed a God to invade our life, to rescue us from our own deadness, from our own saviors that we've been working on. So in verse 1 it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sun's of disobedience. This sounds, um, this sounds really bad, right? So, so far, if you're more of a religious person, if you've been a person that's generally gone to church or generally done nice things or generally been a good citizen, you're thinking, well, this isn't about me. This is about them, right? Paul even says, and you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. You're saying, I'm not a son of disobedience. I'm a pretty nice guy, right? I've not done terrible things. Uh, I don't, I've never murdered anybody. I've never done anything really horrible. I'm, I'm generally okay. So this must be talking about the really bad people. And so it's real easy to think that way, to think that's, that's who he's talking about. But again, he's saying that, that we're all in a situation. He picks that up in verse 3. He says we're all dead and we're all really dead. It's, it's not like there were the really sinful people, and when those really sinful people were saved, it, they really needed salvation because they were really dead. And then there was us. We're pretty good. We just needed a little bit of salvation, right? I mean, we often think that way, and I, I want us to get that, no, we're really sincerely dead, right? In the words of the coroner in uh, the land of Oz, you know, the munchkins there said, uh, well, well, I'll show you a picture here. Remember the wicked witch, the house fell on her, right? And they weren't sure if she was completely dead, but upon further investigation, they found out she really, really was dead. And Paul's saying that's the situation we find ourselves in. We're not just semi-dead. We're not just uh, needing to be shocked into life. We're completely dead. The coroner said, as coroner, I must aver, I've thoroughly examined her. And she's not merely dead. She's really most sincerely dead. And, and I use that to, to let you know that's, that's the situation we're in spiritually. That, that's where we are. Paul says, you're, you're really dead. And again, you might be thinking, well, Dave, no, I, th- I think he's talking about the bad people. I don't think he's talking about me. Um, so let's look at the text a little more. Let, let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, Paul, the, the guy that obeyed the Jewish law more perfectly than anybody else, um, the most religious of religious people, Paul says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying, okay, this is not just the people that are obviously following the prince that's at work in the world, you know, leading the sons of disobedience, these obviously bad people. This is all of mankind. He says, it's all of us. Paul starts off saying, okay, you know, you, you were dead. You were following the prince of the power of this world, We'd call that the devil, the one who's in charge of the, the powers and the kind of principalities, the demonic forces, the, the false gods of this age. 
you were, you were following that. We're thinking, yeah, okay, he's, he's talking about the bad people. And he says, no, no, all of us. We were all there. All of us were there. Paul says, me too. I was there too. We were all there. All of mankind among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We need to define this here, passions of the flesh. Because again, it's this word that just sounds like, well, no, that's, that's the really bad people, right? Those are the really extremely sinful people. This word, uh, passions of the flesh, in the, in the Greek, it's epithumia. Um, and then it's got a parallel statement here, right? It says, in the ESV, it's, it's stated, passions of the flesh, and then carrying out the desires of the body, it says, and the mind, which was, is really desires of the flesh and the mind. Um, so the one word is epithumia, which is over-desire. So it's translated a lot of times in the New Testament as passions. It's translated as desire sometimes, which is other words translated as. It's sometimes translated uh, for coveting, right? Uh, the 10th commandment, that Old Testament word of, of longing for something that's not yours. And it's basically this idea of an over-desire. It can be used positively if it's about God, right? But pretty much everything else, it's, it's the wrong thing. It's the wrong place for our heart to be in. It's this desire that says, I must have it. And, and whether you're a, addicted to some horrible immorality or whether you're a, a really religious, upright person, we, we both do that. We both say, I must have it, right? If you're a religious person, it looks like this. I must have people's respect. I must have an identity as a really righteous person. I'm, I must look good in the eyes of other people. And so we take some strength and we make it into a God. Paul makes it really explicit in, in Galatians. Galatians is a book that he wrote to these former pagans, right? They weren't, they weren't Jewish people, but they were uh, Greek pagans who were following all these false gods. And now they're being tempted to follow the laws of Judaism to, to save themselves by being righteous, to save themselves by being moral. And in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul says, what are you thinking? Why are you turning back to those gods you were serving before, to the elemental spirits of the world, to the powers of the air, like Paul was talking about here, the prince of the power of the air, the, the powers that are at work, the gods of this age? Paul says in Galatians 4 that, that whether you're an outright rebellion or whether you're a religious zealot that's trying to justify yourself by just being holier than the guy next door to you, says either way, you're following the powers of this world, the powers of your own flesh. You're taking good things, bad things, whatever they are, and you're making them ultimate things. And you're saying, I must have this. And this will save me. And the Bible again and again says, even if it's something good, it can't save you, only Jesus can save you. Your own willpower, that's a good thing. Self-control, yeah, we're for that, but it can't save you. Being, being righteous, being kind, being faithful, being strong. The, the flesh is not just talking about our sinful impulses. The flesh is talking about all of us as humans not being God. We, we need Him to save us. We can't save ourselves. And that is clear when you read the whole New Testament and read the context of what the flesh is in the whole New Testament. But it, he makes it pretty explicit right here, right? He says in one phrase, uh, the passions of the flesh. So back to verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And then he restates it so he'll make sure we understand. He's not, not talking about like things we do in the body uh, are bad, but our minds are holy and pure. No, he says our minds are corrupt also. Because he says carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
He's saying, saying both. It, it's all of us. So, so my flesh is whatever strengths I have, good, good and bad. When I make those things ultimate, I'm trying to save myself by my own flesh, right? Like if, if you're really strong, you've got a great bench press. You could pour all your energy into that, right? And you're trusting in your flesh. And most of the time, we don't say it explicitly, but it's under the surface in our heart. We think, this is the thing I've got going for me, and I'm going to devote my energy to this. I'm going to throw other people under the bus to make this better because this is the thing that's going to save me. Or it may be your mind. You may be really smart. Again, that's the strength of your flesh, and you can rely on your mind to save you. It could be your personality. You could just be really good with people. You could love people well. You could be great at making people feel at ease, but you could pour yourself into that in a way that it's an over-desire, a desire of the flesh, where you say, I'm going to save myself through this instead of by trusting in God who will save me from the outside. I'm going to try to save myself by the power of my own flesh, by the power, the desires, the wishes of my own mind. And he says, only God can save you. Those things are causing you to be dead. We're dead in those sins and those trespasses, which include trying to save ourselves even by our own good works. None of those things will do it. Those all end up becoming desires, passions of our own flesh, the wishes of our own heart, our own strength, saving ourselves instead of trusting in God. And so my question for you this morning is whether you're in outright rebellion against God right now and immorality, or whether you're a really righteous person. The question is still, are you trusting in Christ? Just because you're righteous doesn't mean you're trusting in Christ. Just because you do good things that externally look good, you could have a corrupt heart and it's all about you. It's all about you and you really hate the people around you. That's why Jesus always confronted the Pharisees and drove it back to heart issues and said, do you really love God? Do you really love other people or is this all about you? The next thing that we see is how he does this is he makes us alive in Christ. So these, these other powers of our flesh can't save us, but we can only be saved in Christ. So verse 4 really gives us the, the main uh, subject and verb for this whole long sentence, verses 1 through 7. Kind of like in the beginning we saw verses 3 through 14 were one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Uh, here again in the Greek, verses 1 through 7 are one long run-on sentence. And so part of what translators have to do when they translate the Bible is they have to make it make sense in our language, and so it's hard for us to follow a seven-verse sentence, so they break it into little sentences for us to make it a little more understandable. Uh, but just know that this is one long run-on sentence, and verse 4 and 5 here gives us the subject and the verb. Verse 4, the subject is God. Verse 5 is made us alive. And so the, the subject of this whole verb, this action is, uh, or the subject is, The subject is God, right? God and the verb has made us alive. God makes us alive. So if you read verses 4, 5, and 6 together, it says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy, describing him, because of the great love with which he loved us, again describing him, made us alive. Excuse me. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, describing us, what we just saw earlier, we're dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the summary of the whole thing. So God is rich in mercy, God loves us, we're dead in trespasses, he made us alive. So it's by grace you've been saved. 
You didn't save yourself because of how great you were, how strong you were. God saved you by his grace. It says in verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we've been resurrected. We've been seated in him so that we're no longer identified with our deadness. We're no longer identified with our rebellion. We're no longer identified by, I'm going to save myself uh, in my own flesh, in my own strength, in my own rebellion, whatever it may be, but we're identified in Christ. I have a picture here of the ark. Noah's ark is one of the many Old Testament stories that gives us a picture of who Christ is and what he does for us. We're, We're told in the New Testament that the Old Testament is full of these pictures. Noah's ark is a very concrete picture for us, right? Throughout chapter 1 and now into chapter 2 in Ephesians, we have the phrase again and again that we are saved in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, right? So think of the flood and think of the ark. There was death in the flood and there was salvation in the box, in the ark, in that boat. So within that boat, there's salvation. Outside of it, there was death. And we're told that, that Jesus is our salvation, that he is our boat, that he is our survival. We are saved in him. That's our hope. That's what we see here in 4, 5, and 6. We're raised in him. We have heaven in him. We have life in him. We have resurrection in him. There's some beautiful uh, theological words we use for that. One is the incarnation, right? Have you all heard the word incarnation before? A lot of times we talk about that at Christmas time, Jesus being born as a baby. Uh, if, you, if you ever eat uh, chili con carne, right, you know some of these words. Carne means meat. So the idea is that God uh, took on meat. He took on flesh, right? That, that God became a person. He took on a body. And so in the incarnation, we see that God became one of us. It's all right. I'll just use this. Uh, God became one of us and he took on flesh to save us so that we can be found in him. So that the demands of, of a perfect humanity that honors God were met through Jesus. And so that leads us to this other beautiful word, substitution, Right? Substitution is this other beautiful word. Jesus is our substitute. Our sin was placed on him on the cross. He died for us. His perfect righteousness was given to us. So God doesn't just look at us as, okay, I've forgiven you. Now you better never mess up again. That, that's how we often think about it. I've, I've forgiven you. I've wiped the slate clean, but it's getting bad pretty quickly. You better, you better clean this up again. Now he, he's, he paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and he gives us the righteousness of Christ. He gives us the perfection of Christ. He sees us through Christ. When he looks down on us, he sees, going back to the picture of the ark, well, this way, he sees the boat, which is Christ. We're in him. We're in Christ. He sees his perfect son, and we're in him. He sees us as beautiful. He sees us as delightful. He loves us. I think in the daily life of the Christian, this is one of the ones that we struggle with the most. God likes you. If you're in Christ, he likes you. It's not up or down based on your performance. We feel that, right? We feel more distant from God when we wander and when we do stupid things, but he's with us. And his arm is around us, and he says, I'm going to work on this with you. I'm going to work through this with you. I'm never going to let go of you. His his love, as we we sang, his love is, is stronger than anything we can imagine, anything we could hope, anything we could dream. His hold on us is stronger than anything we could hope or dream. So again, cheer up. You're worse off than you think, but you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You're more loved than you could ever imagine. Colossians 2 uses this, this picture of being in Christ 
and being raised with him. So now, uh, through the way God sees us, we're actually in Christ in the future, victorious over sin. He sees us that way. He sees the end. It's hard for us to see it. We just see the now, right? We just see that I'm still bumping around and struggling and falling and flailing. But he sees the future. He sees where we are, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And in Colossians, it says, because of that, that's why we do good things, right? So going back to what we were talking about earlier, we can't save ourselves by being religious. We can't save ourselves by doing good things. We can't save ourselves by doing righteous things. But we do righteous things. We are kind. We are compassionate. We forgive each other because of what Christ has done for us. And that is the core of true Christian righteousness is understanding that we're righteous because of the righteousness that that God has put in us instead of being righteous to earn his affection. We don't earn his affection. He gives it to us. He loves us. His arm is around us so that then we begin saying, okay, how can I start living this out? How can I start looking like my big brother? How can I start walking in this newness of life? And Colossians 3 weds those things together. Here in uh, Ephesians 2, uh, we're here and Several verses later, we'll start talking about how that works out. We'll start talking about how we walk in new works. We do new things that he's created for us in Christ Jesus. So I want to pull some of that application in now and say, so if you're living in in sexual immorality, you you need to put that off because he loves you. And so again, you're not doing it to to get him to love you. You're doing it because you trust him. You, You don't put off your sinful habits to say, God won't like me until I clean up. No, you clean up because you recognize that God loves you and he's forgiven you for your sin. And then you say, well, I, maybe I can actually trust him. Maybe he's really good. And so then maybe doing what he says would be good for me. Maybe then obeying his law would be good for me because now I see he's trustworthy and he's kind and he's gracious. And so we're convinced of his graciousness. We're convinced of his trustworthiness through the gospel. And that's what changes our heart and motivates us to live in a new way. And so I know some of you are still struggling with sinful habits. And I would tell you, yes. Clean up those old habits. Put away that immorality. Put away the old you, but the motivation is because you died with Christ. Because the old you is dead and the new you is alive in him. Because he loves you through Christ. The the last thing I want us to look at is, is his kindness to us. He makes us alive by kindness. The, uh, the traditional theological term for this, this part of Scripture here where it talks about how dead we really are is a term called total depravity. Have you ever heard that before? Total depravity. Um, it's this great word. We, uh, when, when we were in seminary and had a football team, kind of as seminary geeks, that was what we named our football team. Um, so total depravity, we kind of thought that made us like the raiders of the seminary, you know, uh, network and everything there. But total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. It means every part of us is touched by our sinfulness. So again, kind of going back to what we talked about before, it's not like my body sins, but my mind is holy. No, it means every part of me is corrupt. It means I can't save myself. I can't save myself. I can't do it. There's no part of me that's clean. It's not like, okay, I have a corrupt body and a corrupt mind, but my heart means well. So then I can save myself through sincerity. No. It's not like I have a corrupt heart and a corrupt body and I can save myself by thinking right things. Maybe my mind and my heart is corrupt, but I can save myself by just doing right things. No, all parts of us are corrupt. And so that's important to start with. That's important to know. But it's also important not to stop there. And so many Christians that love the, uh, the theology of total depravity often stop there. 
you can't stop there. The Bible never separates these doctrines. They all go together. It's a, it's a package. And we see this in verse 7. It says, he's done all of this. He's found us dead. He's made us alive. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's his grace. That's his immeasurable riches towards us. That's his kindness towards us. We're talking about immeasurable riches. We're not just talking about gold coins, right? Like when I think of immeasurable riches, I think of Scrooge McDuck, a great literary character um, who would often bathe in his gold coins, right? He would swim in them because he had so much his immeasurable riches. If you look at the picture here, it says, Depth gauge, 90 feet. He's got 90 feet of gold coins that he's diving in and swimming in. And nothing makes him more happy because that's the passion of his heart is to have more and more money. The, the immeasurable riches that we have in Christ is Christ. We, we have a God who loves us. We have a God who found us dead and revived us and gives us life and is with us and redeems us and saves us. Another week, a couple of weeks ago this happened where Chris put verses up on the screen during our songs that I was thinking of as secondary verses to talk about during the sermon as well. Happened again this week. One of them is Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. 1 Corinthians 2 says it this way, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's this incredible hope, the kindness that he shows to us, his incredible riches that we have in Christ. And yes, much of that, the completion of that, the climax of that we find in heaven, in a future where there's no more tears, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. But what's fascinating is that as you read Ephesians 3 that talks about the the beyond what we can ask or think, or if you read 1 Corinthians 2 that talks about what no eye has uh, seen or ear has heard, when you read those in context, it's talking about Christ now. You have that now. You are in Christ. We saw this two weeks ago with the Spirit. The Spirit is the deposit. It's a guarantee that He's given to us now that helps us to know that our Father loves us. Romans says, helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, we're forgiven we're restored. His arm is around us. All things are right. And even though we still live in sin and death and brokenness and pain right now, we can be assured that we're moving towards a future where all things are going to be made right. And so his immeasurable kindness is not just the future of heaven. It's not just the gold streets, but it's now. We have this in Christ. And so this drives us to be a praying people. It drives us to be a a hoping people. It drives us to be a celebrating people, appraising people now. That's why we do these crazy things. That's why we gather in a room and say, God, you're awesome. Even though I've had a terrible week, God, you're awesome because I have salvation in you. I know that this is not the end. I know that I have a future coming. I know that I have the deposit of the Spirit now. I know that you love me. I know that you're my good Father. Even though I've been through this abuse, even though I've been through these terrible things, even though I'm sick and my body is falling apart, I know that you love me. That's the deposit and the promise and the hope that we have in Christ by the Spirit right now. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. Yes, the sufferings are real. Cry out to your Father about the sufferings because He loves you. It's okay to cry, it's okay to grieve, but know that He loves you and He's with you and He's walking through it with you, and all things are going to be made right in the end. We're going to share in communion today, and this is one of the ways that historically Christians celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. In baptism, we act out the death and resurrection that we have in Christ. And in communion, we act out the hope that we have in Him being our food and drink. And so I would ask you, if you know that hope in Jesus, to join with us. No matter what church you come from, join with us as a sign of uh, the unity of all who believe in Christ. If you're not sure, if you're asking questions, I'd ask you to not participate, um, that this is a family ceremony, that this is a covenant renewal ceremony for those that know that their hope is in Christ. And if, if you're in that category, I'd love to answer any questions you may have or talk to you more about your doubts or your questions you may have about Christ. Uh, if the men will come forward to pass out the elements, I'll, I'll pray for us. God, we thank you for what we've seen in your word today, that you uh, continue to identify us as your children, even though we were dead, even though we were worse off than we even imagined. And God, we celebrate that we were so much more loved than we ever dared to hope or dream. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for showing us your immeasurable kindness, riches that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask Adam to pray for the bread. Here you go. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and the opportunity to come together. And Father, as we enter this time of communion, I pray, God, that uh, you would remind us of uh, the blood or the, uh, the, the body that was crucified. Father, as we um, take this time, I pray that that vision, as Dave uh, taught us earlier, uh, would resound in our minds. And Lord, we'd give thanks.
The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup. I'm going to ask Eric to thank God for the cup. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son. You restrained Abraham from plunging the knife into his son that you'd asked him to give up. But you ordained sinful men to slay your son that his blood may be shed to pay the price for the sins of all who would believe on Christ forever. And we thank you, Lord, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, but that with the shedding of blood, we are washed whiter than snow. Bless this time now as we remember the ultimate sacrifice you gave and of your triumph over death for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. You can pass the cups to the aisle, and the guys will pick those up for you. If you have a question about anything we talked about today, I'd be glad to to chat with you. If I just haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, You may be dismissed. God bless you. Don't forget the picnic next week. Thanks.